Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Magnifying the voice of hunters and anglers is as critical as the funding that we provide. It's not just about the field work and the money. It's also about the fact that we have more people that are advocates for it, that talk about how much they enjoy hunting and how much they feel like it benefits our wildlife and how much it benefits our conservation and how much it benefits our soul for those of us that hunt and fish. Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws of American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. Welcome to the NWF Outdoors podcast. This is your host, Aaron Kindle. Hope everybody's doing well and ready for a good podcast. I think we've all heard the term R3, recruitment, retention, and reactivation. And that is uh, all about keeping hunters and anglers in the fold and getting more of them out there. Folks are pretty used to hearing about how hunting and angling funds much of conservation, but a lot of folks don't know exactly how that looks on the ground and what programs are out there. And today we have a resident expert. We have uh, Mike Worley from the Georgia Wildlife Federation. How's it going today, Mike? Going good, Aaron. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. And I'm honored to have you, Mike. Mike's one of my favorite guys in the Federation family, as we call it. Uh, Georgia Wildlife Federation is an affiliate of the National Wildlife Federation. As our listeners might know, we have 53 state and territorial affiliates, and a good half or more are what we call hook and bullet affiliates. They lead with the hunting and angling conservation voice. Mike's organization, the Georgia Wildlife Federation, would certainly fit that bill. Not only do they lead with it, they they excel at it, and they have been doing it for, for quite some time. So we'll get into that. Um, Mike's just an amazing conservation mind, and, and he just does such good work. I thought he would be a great one to, to get in here and talk to us about these things and, and help illuminate some of what's being done and, and good ways to do it. So first I'll tell you a little bit about him, and then we'll do our, our standard uh, what we've been doing outside spiel so, so folks know what we've been up to. And we'll get a little taste of what's going on in Georgia from Mike. And then we'll jump in a little bit. Um, so I should just tell you, you know, Mike came to Georgia Wildlife Federation from Georgia Power. And he did environmental affairs and legislative affairs and, and a lot of development, economic community development with those folks. And uh, he's an avid hunter and angler. He's been with, how long have you been with Georgia Wildlife Federation now, Mike? Uh, just over six years now. Okay. So been there for six years, been working on a lot of cool programs, doing a lot of innovative stuff, and we're going to talk about some of those. So that's Mike. We'll put some links to the Georgia Wildlife Federation, some of these programs in the show notes so folks can check that out. But let's start with our 
traditional intro, Mike. What the heck have you been doing outside lately? Oh man, I, let's see. So it's been it's been pretty darn hot around here, but I, I've uh, managed to sneak in a uh, a uh, a trip to the local farm ponds and catch a few bluegill with my uh, grandson. Uh, and uh, you know, always uh, we're always out working on making sure that we can still shoot our uh, bows straight. So uh, you know, you never stop that kind of thing. So. Yeah, making sure that my uh, my dog Jenny, she's my big my uh, my big hunting buddy, is uh, tuned up and ready to go for opening day of dove season and opening day of duck season. She's uh, she's ready to go pick up some ducks. She and she will go pick up a dove though she objects to that a little bit. How about you? <laughs> when when well first I know when dove season starts because it starts the same time everywhere. But when does your duck season get rolling? Well, now uh, our duck season will uh, typically. I'm a I'm a I'm a traveling duck hunter. I'll uh, open my duck season normally uh, the weekend following Thanksgiving. I'm in a I'm in a duck club in Northwest Mississippi, and uh, we've been uh, sitting around for the last couple of years watching people north of us shoot ducks, and while uh, those of us in the southern part of the range have have looked at empty skies, but. You know, I think uh, the, us duck hunters are, uh, I, I told somebody earlier today, fatalistic optimists. You know, we, we look at the, uh, we look at those uh, <laughs> skies and, and, and we're always saying they're on every, you know, when are the ducks going to show up? But we always keep showing up. We're the optimists. They'll always be there at some point. <laughs> well, so. one of these days I hope to take you up on uh, a couple of different invitations you've given me to come look for quail or ducks or a couple of different things. So I really, the, actually through talking to you and in this job, I've I've kind of grown this desire to be down and, and check out Georgia more. I never, wasn't really on my radar, but just hearing your passion and kind of learning about it a little bit more through Artemis Georgia program and a couple other things, I've said, man, there's some really cool stuff down there that I, I better go see. So one of these days I'll be down there, Mike, and we'll do some of this stuff. We can do anything. I grew up quail hunting around here, quail hunting and squirrel hunting, and all the all the little small animals. And uh, but now we we've uh, got you know through all of the work that's been done through the years, we've got a huge deer population. We could even uh, we can even uh, figure out a way to probably get you on an alligator hunt down here. So uh, just come on down. We'll have a big time. <laughs> there you go. I've tried alligator once, but I've never never hunted them, obviously. So. Yeah, that sounds fun. One of these one of these times when we've got a a, a, a minute for your podcast, we've got a, a one of my employees uh, caught one that caught an alligator that weighed about nine hundred pounds. He's almost thirteen wow. feet long, and his full body mount is in the lobby of our build our building. Well, I'll have to see that too. That sounds pretty impressive. <laughs> well, uh, for my outside adventures. Uh, I try to beat the heat too in a little bit different way than you. I try to go up above timberline and uh, here in Colorado, 11,500 feet or so and chase cutthroat trout, preferably early in the morning or get up really early and float the river before the water temperatures get too hot for the trout. So I've taken my family, my kids got a bunch of cutthroats last week or two and I've been on the river and getting up real early and, and, and catching brown trout on streamers because we've actually had a lot of rain and it stains the water and that improves the conditions for, for using those flashy streamers first thing in the morning. So done that a couple of times and, and 
my kids are about to go back to school and my boy has a has a bow tag that starts right at the beginning of September. And so he's been shooting and scouting and doing all kinds of good stuff right here from the house. We, we border some BLM. So just kind of ramping up like that and, and really trying to take advantage of the last few days we have with the whole family and, and uh, you know, before everybody's back to school and everything gets crazy again. So good stuff. Well, Mike, let's, uh, let's first let you tell us a little bit about Georgia Wildlife Federation. Just, uh, you know, when it started, kind of your main programs, and then, and then we'll jump into this R3 stuff. But I think folks should really know, you know, kind of what a conservation powerhouse you guys are down there in the, that corner of the, of the world there. Give us a little update there. Good deal. Good. Well, Georgia Wildlife Federation has been around since 1936. We were, we were founded the same year that National Wildlife Federation was founded. So uh, all the, uh, all the uh, hook and bullet organizations from across the country were called to DC uh, to address the uh, conservation crisis that we had at the time in game animals and. They formed the National Wildlife Federation in February and came back to Georgia. The club, the, all the clubs from here came back to Georgia and in December of that same year uh, founded Georgia Wildlife Federation. So we've been operating for, uh, you know, 85 years now and, uh, and again, going strong. We've got about 30,000 members here in the state. We've got a uh, 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 couple of nature centers. We've got all kinds of activities going on with, uh, with um, private lands, working with folks there uh, on, on some of their private lands initiatives. We've got things going on with our, um, uh, you know, we do a big trade show every year. It's a big fundraiser for us. It's called the Buckarama. And that's coming up at the end of this <laughs> month. We're real excited about, and we do a, a, a fish and turkey show in February of every year. So having a big time getting, getting prepped up for those things. Uh, and, uh, doing all kinds of activities around the state. And, uh, but, but our primary mission, and I've talked about this quite a bit, we're one of the states, we are the state's oldest conservation organization. Uh, and so we, we have been engaged on all policy issues on conservation since our founding. And, I talk to people all the time, and if I'm given a chance, I'll usually say our primary uh, role is an advocacy uh, advocacy for the uh, professional science-based management of our wildlife and our natural resources. So that's who we are. Sounds a little bit dull when you say it that way, but it really gets uh, <laughs> entertaining and exciting when we're at the state house working on these issues. Yes, it, in in partnership with so many different, you know, federation affiliates and other conservation organizations and sporting conservation organizations every year during those legislative sessions. It's always a kind of a, a bit of a circus, but fun and, and, and a lot of good work gets done. So we appreciate that commitment. Mike, before we jump into R3, what do you think the number one conservation issue is in Georgia? You know, for folks from other places around the country, what are you dealing with that's, you know, the most immediate need? Um, you know, we're always concerned. Obviously, the, the, the species that pays the bills, if you will, on conservation here in Georgia is white-tailed deer. Uh, clearly, that's uh, both uh, we, we have a lot of out-of-state folks that come in here and hunt, uh, hunt deer. Our quail population is really a... a uh, an issue, and, you know, we talk about quail plantations and, and a lot of hunting goes on in our quail plantations, but our uh, 
our wild population of northern bob white quail is is uh, has suffered a bit with the changes in habitat those kinds of things through the years so we've uh, i think some of those issues probably are, are at the at the forefront we're working on things uh, associated with uh, increasing uh, access uh, increasing pop, you know some of our access to public lands uh, you know uh, out where you are Aaron y'all y'all deal with uh, uh, BLM lands and all kinds of uh, open spaces in public lands here in Georgia we are 90 uh, roughly 93 percent privately held now that means we, we still have about a million acres of of, uh, of land that we can hunt uh, and fish as public lands but uh, but 93% of the land is privately owned. So we spend a lot of time working on, on issues with our private landowners as well. That's one of the, like I said, one of the programs that we've got here. So, yeah, uh, those are probably the biggest ones we're, we're faced with uh, in the coming year. We also will spend some time in September and our legislative session starts in January. So one of the things we do is convene all of the uh, hook and bullet organizations in the state we bring everybody together uh, in September and we talk about the issues that we're all planning to work on uh, at the state capitol and so that we can be mutually supportive. Uh, and then we do that with the with our wildlife agency as well and then pull them all together again just before the legislative session in January to kind of get a really focused approach to what are the things we're going to work on here. So that's sort of, we, we take that federation uh, part of our name really uh, really seriously, we work with a lot of organizations to accomplish a lot of stuff that we do. Yeah, you guys do it well too. And, uh, you know, for folks who don't know, boy, the rubber sure meets the road at these state legislative sessions. And uh, especially when it comes to wildlife management, you know, wildlife is managed by the states in very large, in very large part, a little bit of, of federal management, but mostly by states. And Boy, changing seasons, tag allocations, how they're going to manage herds, all those things are often uh, determined in state legislatures or wildlife commissions, and a lot of action happens during those sessions. So if you're an average Joe or Jane out there, one good way to get engaged in conservation is uh, figure out what's going on in your legislature and, and go advocate, connect up with folks like Mike and Georgia Wildlife Federation, and they'll always have good information about how you can get engaged and what the issues are. And I don't know, Mike, do you guys do, you, you said you get folks together and I know we, we do this in some other places. Do you guys do the thing where, you know, you, you give folks kind of a one oh one. here's what's going on in the legislature. Here's the issues this year. Here's why this issue or that issue is important. Do you do that kind of thing as well? We do. We also have uh, something. That, so every year during our, uh, we have a group, uh, a, a setup called Camo uh, Coalition. Uh, I think some other states do the same thing or similar things, but we we give all of our members. It's a it's a free sign up initiative. Everybody can sign up here in the state. I, I even encourage folks from across the country if you want to sign up and uh, and and see what we're doing. But we do before the legislative session. We talk about all the things that we're expecting to see. Say, for example, in this coming year, we'll talk about all the things that are pending. So Georgia has a two-year legislative cycle. So things that were in that were considered last year but didn't pass are still active for this coming session. So we'll talk about the things that are out there that we're you know we're monitoring or working on. We'll talk about new ideas as well. 
and then throughout the session, if, if we see uh, issues that we really think a, a, a hunter's or an angler's voice would make a difference in at the Capitol, we issue uh, alerts and encourage our members to, to con reach out to their, uh, their member of the state legislature. And you're, you're spot on, Aaron. You know, a lot of times, you know, people spend so much time thinking about and talking about what happens at the national level. But on a day-to-day -day basis, on what you're really, what really makes a difference to you as a, as a, as a person that loves the outdoors, what really, what really counts is what's happening in in, in your state. And so, I encourage folks all the time. You know, it's it's good pay pay attention to what's going on at the national level, but really, you ought to be digging in at the state level. Yeah, you got that right. I'm glad you said that. And. One of the things I, I like to say about a lot of our affiliates, and you, this definitely is applicable for you too, is that kind of cradle-to-the-grave work, right? From the time they're kids, getting them out and teaching them stuff, to the time they're, in your case, even better, this academic's a field we're going to talk about. They get into college, maybe some of them haven't gotten there yet, and you're getting them out and then edu keeping keep to educate them as they work through their lives and keeping connected. And then, you know, maybe one day they own some private land and you, you all are doing work with them on their private land. So I like that the whole, the whole life cycle there, it's important to keep folks engaged throughout the, the whole life cycle. And you guys are doing excellent at that. And now let's pause for a message from our partner podcast. Hey everyone, this is Marsha Brownlee from Artemis Sports Women. We know you love awesome stories about hunting, fishing, and conservation, so head on over to the Artemis Podcast. You'll meet adventurous, accomplished women who are redefining conservation through their lives in the field and on the water. Filled with humor, audacity, empathy, and intelligence, Artemis brings you new voices and introduces you to women from all walks of the sporting community. Find Artemis wherever you get your podcasts. Mike, let's jump into this R3 thing. So... We have talked about this a handful of times on this podcast, this recruitment, retention, reactivation. Folks have heard us talk about Artemis. We have a partner podcast, our Artemis podcast. They do a ton of this work. Georgia Wildlife Federation, we have a, a, a partnership there, Artemis Georgia, in, con, in conjunction with Georgia Wildlife Federation. These are all about getting people out, keeping them engaged, you know, providing a community so that they have support groups if they don't, if they didn't grow up hunting or, you know, they don't have a relative hunting. And this is all critical because hunters and anglers, their license dollars, the Pittman Robertson fees, Dingle Johnson, that ends up paying for up to 80, sometimes 90% of these state fishing game agencies budgets. And without that, without these folks hunting and fishing, those budgets take a big hit. And I think sometimes even more importantly, the advocates, the people who are in the field every year, waking up at four in the morning, having those critical wildlife experiences that really are authentic and really help you know that landscape. Those advocates are some of the best ones I know. They, you know, there's nothing like uh, going year after year to a place and observing habitat changes and species changes and different migration patterns and all of these things. That's why that's so critical. And then even cooler in, in this case is some of the stuff Mike and Georgia are doing because they're not only seeing it in that way, but they're providing unique, innovative, fun ways for people to stay engaged um, and get engaged. And, and 
We'll let Mike talk about that a little bit more, but they're a really exemplary organization. And uh, let's just jump in there, Mike. I mean, you guys have a Field the Fork program. You have this program called Academics of Field. You have uh, Artemis, Georgia. Where do you want to start? Because there's a bunch there and, and kind of maybe maybe start from just, you know, why you guys put that so central in your in your work. Yeah. So let me, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll read sure. just a little bit of what, what you were saying, because I completely agree with, and, you know, when we talk about the funding models for our, uh, our conservation work that's done in this, st- in this state or any state, essentially, uh, the, the funding from the, uh, from the hunters and anglers is the critical component. We've paid for the vast majority of the conservation work that's happened over the last hundred years in this, uh, in this country. Uh, and so, I, it certainly is a component of what we we want to talk about and discuss when we talk about hunting and, and recruitment. But I also I, I try and remind folks it's not the only component. And you're you're spot on, Aaron, when you talk about the advocacy component. Um, I'm at the state capitol every day during the legislative session. Uh, we have great friends and great partners with a lot of our uh, legislative chairman, a lot of the committees that we work with on a day-to-day basis, but the vast majority, just as the vast majority of our population doesn't hunt uh, or fish, the vast majority of our legislative uh, legislators don't hunt or fish. And so it is a, uh, it's magnifying the voice of hunters and anglers is as critical as the funding that we provide. And so I want to always remind folks that it's not just about it's not just about the the field work and the money. It's also about the fact that we make hunting and angling. Um, we have more people that that are advocates for it. That talk about you know at a at a dinner party can talk about how much they enjoy hunting and how much they feel like it benefits uh, our wildlife and how much it benefits our conservation and and how much it benefits our soul for those of us that hunt and fish uh you know and and you're you're talking about going and catching cutthroats with your uh with your kids and me talking about going and you know throwing a few rooster tails and catching a few uh bluegill with my grandson and those are things that you can never get back uh and those are experiences that carry on forever and we ought to in order to ensure those experiences carry on forever, we've got to make sure that we have more hunters and anglers out there. So that's another reason why we do a lot of the uh, R3 work here. Now, um, I'll be glad, let me talk a little bit about Artemis, Georgia is one that I'm really excited about. Artemis, Georgia is, uh, as, as I'm sure you've talked about on your podcast, is a program uh, by women and for women. Uh, I, I laugh and joke about it around here. I, it, you know, it's, it's kind of the guy that heads up Georgia Wildlife Federation. The one program that we're, we work with and have and get and engage with, uh, this, uh, that I can't get and get, I can't, they won't let me even get on the phone calls with them is the Artemis <laughs> Georgia program because it's, it is for women. It's a set, uh, sort of a place for women to go and talk about, uh, uh, you know, the, the hunting that they do, but also the uh, the preparations and all the things that make it unique 
and and make the a woman's experience different in the woods. So it's really kind of a fun program for us to have, and one that's been really popular. Uh, we we have a, uh, a a really group of a group of really high powered uh, influential women that serve as our on our steering committee, and they're doing a great job with that with that program. Uh, and I think you asked about our field of fork initiative, and. That's a that's been a fun one. Uh, field of Fork. So we let me give you a little bit of background about our R three program and our R three partnership. So Georgia Wild uh, Wildlife Federation is Georgia's R three coordinator. We do that in partnership with our agency, the state Georgia uh, Georgia Department of Natural Resources, uh, and the and we do it also with the Na National Wild Turkey Federation. National Deer Alliance and Safari Club International of Georgia. Those are our, our partners in this initiative. And uh, Field of Fork is one that really kind of, all of us are, are equal partners. All of us contribute ideas and thoughts and ways to move this forward. And uh, our partners at uh, NDA, National Deer Alliance, uh, pitched several years ago the, uh, uh, the Field of Fork initiative where we actually took, uh, we, we had a couple of volunteers, actually it was our R3 coordinator, uh, one of the guys from NDA, and they went to a, uh, uh, a local farmer's market and just started handing out bites of, uh, of deer tenderloin and, uh, and letting folks try it and kind of tapping into the locavore folks that were at this farmer's market. And we had, and then we said, we'll teach you to hunt. We'll teach you to, how to take this animal. We'll teach you how to prepare it, how to, how to field dress it, how to, uh, how to clean it, how to get it uh, transported, how to turn it into a, a meal that you can cook at home. That's brilliant. And so we went through that whole, the whole process with them. And uh, we've had, oh gosh, we had a, um, uh, a microbiology PhD student uh, from Haiti that was one of our participants. We've had vegans that were uh, that were um, that were participating, all because they liked the the food sourcing, the the ethical, clean, non um, you know non um, I, I guess uh, no no medicines or antibiotics and uh, you know everything was is clean and natural and uh, the way it was intended to be so that's been a really popular program uh, we did uh, several we had a, a lot of uh, interest from that we even had an article on the front page of the Wall Street Journal that uh, talked wow. about our uh, our field of fork program still one of the uh, kind of the flagships of that uh, that R3 initiative so our next uh, our program that we really wanted to talk about today, and that you and I had uh, had mentioned, was our academics of field program, and uh, it's uh, turned out to be a, a, a tremendous opportunity. Really brought a lot of people in uh, and given us a lot of opportunities to uh, to get into places. And let me kind of lay the groundwork for that. So we were having some conversations. Uh, oh gosh, it's been several years ago now with. Head of our uh, our uh, university's uh, wildlife program, uh, the dean of the school there, uh, and he talked a lot about the fact that a lot of the incoming 
wildlife biology and uh, incoming forestry students had not spent a lot of time outdoors. Typically weren't hunters anymore. Uh, a lot of them were coming from urban areas, coming from suburban areas, and uh, uh, sort of we, we sort of referred to them as a Discovery Channel biologist. Uh, really brilliant folks, really smart uh, students coming into the schools, schools and into the into this uh, uh, into these fields of study, but they didn't have much field experience. Um, a few months later, talking with the head of our, one one of our agencies, our wildlife agency, and uh, it, he was voicing at the time that uh, you know they when they hired people out of our uh, wildlife schools these days, they tended to have less field experience, less outdoor experience than what they had had 20 years ago. And it was a bit lamenting a bit about that. And, uh, and so, you know, we, we thought about it, molded over as part of our R3 initiative and R3 concerns. And we, uh, we began to just kind of formulate an idea that uh, instead of, you know, trying to figure out how we could get these folks up to, up to speed by, prior to getting to school, Research showed us that um, that people in the 18 to 24 year old age group were at that point trying to they were explore, exploring a lot of activities. In a lot of ways, they were setting the, up the activities that they would generally pursue for the rest of their lives, uh, and they oftentimes had the time and the resources to be able to pursue those activities. You know. A lot of times through the years, we thought about R3 and, and uh, we thought about recruitment to hunting as something that works with, with kids. And while we all love to do kids programming and we love to teach kids to shoot and we love to keep, teach kids to hunt, once you start looking at it, kind of evaluating it, a lot of the, a lot of the folks that we're working with that in those, with the kids, if their parents are willing to bring them to work to, uh, to a, uh, uh, a shooting program or a hunting program, then their parents are pretty much open to hunting and shooting. And oftentimes you'd find those kids are going to hunt or fish anyway. Um, what we found as we were moving through this process, working with these uh, young adults, 18 to 24, is that oftentimes we've seen generations skipped leading up to them. Uh, so they don't have anybody, their, their parents don't hunt. Uh, uh, and sometimes their parents and grandparents haven't hunted. And so they've not had any experience at all with with what this in, uh, entails. And so, uh, you know, the Academics of Field idea was born. And we started it in our two wildlife uh, universities. So we have a University of Georgia at the Warnell School has a tremendous hmm. uh, uh, wildlife program, one of the most you know, respected, highly, highly respected in the, in the nation. We have Abraham uh, Baldwin Agri Agricultural College, ABAC, uh, in the southwestern part of the state that has a, tr a terrific wildlife program as well. So we started the program with those two, uh, expanded it within the state uh, the, uh, the following year to include a third university. Uh, and, uh, and, in, and in these programs, we we basically we buy we buy guns. We uh, partner with a couple of folks. We've had Delta Waterfowl as a partner. Two or three other organizations out there that have partnered with us. Uh, National Shooting Sports Foundation uh, did a lot of uh, a lot of support for the program early on. 
And we, so we basically take 12 students at a time, uh, pair them with mentors, and we teach them about hunting specific uh, uh, species here in Georgia. So in the, in the fall semester, we'll uh, recruit these students and we'll teach, them, we'll teach them to go on a dove shoot, opening day dove shoot, and we'll take them uh, deer hunting during the fall semester. Uh, spring, spring semester, we typically do a waterfowl hunt, uh, and then we will do a, uh, a small game hunt, uh, typically squirrel hunting or something like that. For, and for each of those species, we, we do a biology con- conversation with the students in advance, we talk about the conservation of those animals. We talk about the hunting process. Then we uh, then uh, we take them hunting. Uh, we teach them to clean the animal, uh, and we teach them to cook it. We'll have a social that goes along with it for each one of those four hunts. Uh, and the students, we have just gotten rave reviews from the students that have participated. But we are but beyond just the the feel good component. We're also trying to make sure that we track these uh, these students uh, through the uh, through the process to ensure that not only are we connecting with them to take them out hunting, but that they continue to buy hunting license and they continue down the track and and we we continue to survey uh, survey them and we're we're actually even trying to be more robust in our uh, our scientific analysis of it. So it's really been a lot of fun so far. This is this is incredible, Mike. I I have a long string of questions now because you told me about three different things there before I really jumped in. But um, since we're on this, good. Well, I've, I, I've just stopped so I can let you talk because I've I've been I've been I can preach all day long about this. We're we're really that excited about it. <laughs> yeah, let's talk a little bit about exactly how it works. So when they come to the to the school. Did they get information automatically? Do you, you know, work with the professors to identify certain kids that may be, a, you know, better candidates? How, how do you do it? And then walk us through what is what does the start of it look like? Is it a, you know, a get together or, you know, how, how do you kind of mechanically go about making this happen? So it's uh, so and every every school is a little different because every you know we're different campus rules and regulations. We provide the funding for them to buy to buy firearms, uh, but we also and I think more important than anything, we hire an intern at each university, and so the intern is is employed by us. We pay them all of, you know to to do the work on these uh, on these events. We also have a, univers- a, a faculty advisor on staff at each university. So it, it puts some accountability to make sure that the program is running, running appropriately. And that, uh, that uh, intern uh, is tasked with recruiting the people into the, into the program. Typically it's someone that will be in, in their classes. Uh, we do uh, email blasts on campus we have they do tabling at events on on campus to uh, to sign people up uh, and they do they will visit uh, particularly if you've got uh, the, uh, a faculty advisor they'll visit that faculty advisor's classes and they'll specifically try to recruit people to participate we're finding that we don't have a lot of trouble finding f- folks to participate we're folk the uh, the students are really 
interested and engaged. Uh, so it's been a lot of it's been a lot of fun. But the critical component for us is that because because we pay them, we have a, we can uh, we can have some bit of accountability associated sure. with that. It's not just a volunteer program that runs within within the university. So how many how many kids are you typically getting per? I mean, per year, per semester, you know, you, you say you don't have any trouble filling it. What are we talking here? So typically we'll have uh, a dozen students uh, uh, associated with each hunt. Some schools, and so we, ha- and we do have some flexibility with the way we run the program. So some schools run the program where, um, and, I'll, and I'll talk about the schools in a minute and how we've expanded those schools. But typically, they will have 12. We provide 12 firearms uh, for the program. So they'll have 12 students for each of the hunts. They have, that means they also have 12 mentors, um, as well as our, um, as well as our uh, uh, intern. We, we also ensure that we're safe and we're teaching folks right. The, the firearms that we provide are, are uh, multi-use. Uh, you can use the firearm on every species that we hunt. It's a 20-gauge uh, uh, shotgun, so you can take white-tailed deer with it. You can tail, kill waterfowl with it. And uh, we put our interns, we get them an instructor's uh, certification. Uh, is one of the first things we do when we hire them. Uh, and so 24 per hunt you know, with the students and with the uh, and the mentors. Some schools teach that do that is they they have they'll do twelve they'll do a dozen for one hunt. There's no requirement. You don't have to have done the first hunt to do the second hunt. Uh, they can have some new new people join in or 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 carry them forward. <laughs> one of our schools, North Carolina State, uh, does an annual cohort. So they sign up. 12 students at the beginning of the year and they keep those same 12 students throughout the year. Uh, and uh, so we're, we're, we're evaluating which one of the systems works best. That's part of the research that's going into this to see which, which model works. Wow. So you're doing even other States, not just Georgia. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we were, we were working uh, with the universities here in the state, and uh, uh, last year, obviously, with the uh, uh, we had an expansion. A new program came from the uh, with, from AFWA and from uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, the multi-state grants, uh, and we put in a proposal to expand academics of field. So we currently have programs operating in Mississippi, Louisiana. Uh, Tennessee, North Carolina, and South Carolina, uh, in addition to our programs here at Georgia. Wow. Uh, and that's pretty incredible. Yeah. And so, and the North Carolina state is, uh, uh, kind of running the program underneath Dr. Lincoln Larson and many people that are involved with the R3 world are familiar with Dr. Larson. He is a, uh, he's a researcher that's spent a lot of time looking at this R3 initiative and the recruitment component. And so they are doing, with, with the recruitment of them and the addition of them to our program, they're doing a lot of the uh, data analysis, a lot of the 
surveys and a lot of the programmatic analysis so that we can really figure out what's the right model, what's the right direction, and how do we and, and are we being successful at keeping these uh, these students engaged for the long term? That's excellent. I think this is pretty dang cool. It's it's one of the places I've often thought that this stuff should go. And then, so Mike, how, how long have you been doing this? How, how many years now? It's, it's pretty new still, right? Yeah, it's pretty new. We're, we're wrapping up our third year. Uh, and obviously this past year was a bit of a challenge with the, uh, with the COVID, you know, as, uh, and the, the, the pandemic. Uh, uh, a lot of our schools were remote. Uh, we were able to get a few events in. You know, our activities are outdoors and uh, pretty safe, but uh, we had to modify the way we did some of our um, recruitment. We also had to modify the way we did some of our uh, events. So we try to do everything outdoors or have tried to do everything outdoors. We've been able to do some dub shoots and, and, but the participation has been down a bit this year to be perfectly honest with you because of the COVID restrictions. I I was just saying, sure. So you probably got hundreds of kids by now with, especially with these other States going through it. Are you seeing these same folks come back to some of the other things? like Artemis or Field the Fork or, you know, are you seeing these folks show up in, in, in other spaces? We have. We've seen some of our uh, participants show up. Uh, kind, of, kind of seen some crossover between some of the Field of Fork and the, and the uh, Academics of Field programs. We've seen some of our participants uh, from our Academics of Field program. We have seen a couple come into our Artemis program. And I guess one of the things I really ought to point out, and one of the things that probably excites me, the you know, kind of gets me fired up the most about uh, about the future, is that the participants don't normally don't necessarily look like uh, our you know our traditional hunter base. Roughly half of our participants, if you take a look at the whole the whole program, uh, roughly half of our participants are women. Uh, we can't say that about our, uh, you know, when you look at the uh, licenses that are purchased out there, it's a much lo- much lower percentage. Yeah. Uh, and we're also seeing a fair number of people of color uh, have been participants in this program, which is just a, uh, it was uh, it was one of those things that sort of, you know, we start looking at, at the results and we start asking our questions because not just looking at results, but you look at the folks that are showing up on these events and they don't look like traditional people that are recruited to hunting, you know, with the, yeah. you know, the, the, the older white guy with a ball cap on, uh, if you will, you know, it's, uh, it's people showing up that aren't necessarily, don't even have a camo, you know, go to a dove shoot and they don't have a camo shirt on, <laughs> but, uh, but they're successful and they're learning and they're having a great time. And all of a sudden they're bringing their, their friends into the uh, field as well. So, uh, that's also led us into uh, a, a new area, and so this this coming uh, uh, academic year, we have a uh, plan to move into historically black colleges and universities. We're going to specifically focus uh, our new efforts on HBCUs across the uh, across the region, and so we've got uh, we've got. Um, commitments from about 10 univers- ten HBCUs across the uh, uh, across the southeastern part of the country 
uh, to participate, and we are finding tremendous support among the uh, among the administration of these HBCUs. Uh, and so really excited about that as an opportunity. You know, we've got um, so many of, so many, uh, you, know, you, look up, you look at our history and uh, 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 hunting has not been seen as, a, uh, as an area that's really open and attractive to folks uh, of, of uh, you know, people of color and, and women. And so we're seeing that, we're trying to address that through this, uh, the way this program is working now with the HBCU initiative. That's exciting, Mike. I, I commend you for what you're doing. It's, it's groundbreaking. It's pioneering. You know, you guys are jumping into spaces that, and doing it effectively and, and openly and invitingly. You know, that's, that's kind of, I think one of the things that's both a stereotype and somewhat true, too, you know, the good old boys club, right? Like, uh, if you're a new person into it, you're, uh, am I going to step into a room with a bunch of guys that have been hunting for 20, 30 years that are all kind of, you know, <laughs> all together and they know one another. And here I am this newbie. I mean, I remember talking to a lot of friends who that's been their experience, really feeling intimidated by that. Um, so doing this kind of groundbreaking work where you can find it in school or, you know, a farmer's market or some of these other things just are so critical to, to really opening the, the doors to, to any and all. And uh, it's, it's been an interesting paradigm too, because I think hunting and fishing are actually one of the most inclusive, cool things, right? Because you can go out in the woods and everybody's going to experience seeing a deer or an elk or a bear or a, you know, a critter the same way. They're going to have that awesome kind of primal experience of being out there like we have for all of human history, um, regardless of, of any of the other stuff. So it's a cool way that we got to get to reconnect with one another on, on such a basic level and uh, share that kind of ancient thing that we've always been doing. And I just love the different ways you're looking at it. Yeah, it's it's awesome when you go out and you and you see one of these. Uh, whether it's shooting a dove for the you know for the first time and it's the first animal they've ever shot, or you take them out and they shoot a, a whitetail, and you know they get the uh, the adrenaline shakes and they uh, they get all of the excitement. Uh, everybody, you're you're right. Everybody experiences a lot of the same things, but. But one of the things I've I've found interesting is that they they they're able to express it in different ways, uh, and so it's been a lot of fun to see these uh, see these young folks kind of uh, open up and begin to see the outdoors in a different way. That's really one of the exciting components I think of our HBCU initiative, as we've one of the challenges I think we face, and it's our agencies, it's our NGOs. I mean, if you look around the room, oftentimes when we're when we're talking about uh, some of these issues, you know, we don't have any people of color, uh, and and you know, I, I, one of the one of the really cool components that I'm excited about is uh, the the HBCUs that we've signed up so far don't necessarily have wildlife programs. Now they may be a land grant university that has, uh, has they have a big agricultural in, uh, involvement. 
They're, uh, they're doing a lot of work, you know, they have heavy science uh, engagement, but it's they're, they don't have a wildlife program. But what I hope we see coming out of this is a lot of these students begin to look around and see people that look like them engaged in these activities. And perhaps we'll begin to see some of them interested in coming into this, uh, into this world as professionals, as people that can, can help run these agencies and make yeah. these agencies and make these organizations and NGOs even more accepting and more, uh, a, more a part uh, and more open. And I, that's one of my big, you know, I don't talk about that often when, uh, when we're talking to students, but it is one of the big goals that we have of, of really kind of ensuring, expanding the role of, uh, and the capacity of hunting, but also ultimately expanding the inclusion into the professional world of wildlife management of, uh, and of, of uh, wildlife advocacy. So really excited about yeah. the long-term components of this as well, Aaron. Yeah, that paints a bright future, you know, with a, a lot more diversity and just different opinions and different angles that people came at things from. Uh, that we we need, you know, I think we both could agree, probably need a little infusion of, you know, different ideas. And there's <laughs> there's some pretty kind of standard and, and set in stone ways that maybe people have here to. And they're not bad necessarily, but it's always good to get innovative, you know, different looks at things. And so I like that. And um, I, I, the other thing I, I want to just ask you, I know we're getting close to our to our hour, Mike, but you know, the food component, do you have some good stories from your field, the fork program? Because boy, I think one of my favorite things about hunting is sharing wild game with people. Um, you know, people are often skeptical. I don't know. It's going to taste weird. It's going to taste gamey. And then, you know, boy, it just opens up this whole fascinating kind of journey of, of, wow, well, how did you get this? And what was it like? And how hard is it? And what do you do? And do you cook it this way? And there's just so many cool things that come with that. And I bet, you know, you guys introducing all these different folks to to that, you've probably got some really cool stories. And we should tell people, you made a film too, that was really good that I watched the uh, with, with your partners. Maybe you should put a little pitch in for that for folks to watch. But Maybe share with us just one of the cooler things that you've you've seen along that along those lines. Yeah, I will tell you, and I, um, I, it is it is you will find as we look and talk to these these young people uh, that the the locavore the locally sourced, ethically uh, handled, ethically taken uh, animals is is critical. One of the things we find, and probably one one of the things that uh, folks listening to the podcast will find interesting, is that the participants uh, uh, seem to approach why they do this a little differently. Uh, and I was telling a, a story recently to a group I was giving a speech, oh, about a month ago, and we were talking about the fact that, you know, I come from a, a tradition where my I hunted with my grandfather. I hunted with my father. Uh, we we quail hunted. We small game hunt, hunted. My grandfather came from very humble circumstances, 
and the hunting that he did had focused on on food. The hunting and fishing was a uh, was a food supplement. It really made a difference to the family uh, that they were able to to take animals and and to 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 provide a, a food. Over the last few years, a lot of us hunters have kind of become focused on things other than that. I mean, certainly we all appreciate the food value of what we take, but there's a, a lot of interest in trophies and all those kind of things. We don't find that much with these new these new folks. Now, it'll be interesting to see how they approach it as time goes by, but it's almost like we're coming, you know, it's back to the, you know, back to the future, if you will. My grandfather hunted to put food on the table. These these students that were uh, recruiting with our academics of field program, the students the, and the people that we recruited with our field of fork, uh, are all, yeah, they're they're excited about the opportunity to go hunting, but they're all motivated by the by the food component of it, virtually a hundred percent. And so it and and the ethical component of it, you know, these are these are wild animals that that grew up as a creator intended and and uh, and you pursue them and you take them ethically and uh, they it is a huge plus for these uh, for these young people it, it's really made me stop and look at it again a couple of times Aaron to be perfectly honest with you and say hey you know these folks kind of bring bring it back to uh, and, and make it sort of real again about what we're doing and what our foundations are Awesome. So, yeah, the food component is really cool, and we teach them to prepare the food. We teach them to clean the animals. We had a waterfowl hunt uh, here at our headquarters uh, last last winter. Took a couple of geese, and uh, and part of the part of the program is after we after we came out of the swamp, uh, we uh, we gathered up under a pavilion and we uh, we cleaned the cleaned the geese and. Uh, and they had a big uh, cookout. Now, there wasn't, that's obviously not enough to go around to 20 people, but it was certainly enough for them to all taste it and understand it. So it's really kind of a, it, it's, sure. a it's a fundamental component of what, of what these young people look at it. And it's a, little, it's a little bit different from the previous generation. Yeah, I think it's, man, it's critical. I, I just commend you. It's everybody seeing themselves in the outdoors and, and getting there through a different vehicle, whether it be food or, you know, college or uh, Artemis or, you know, you guys are just giving so many open doors uh, to the public to get into these things and, and, you know, doing it in a way that's, that's inviting. I, that's, that's so critical to all of this. And, um, and, and I just, I, I couldn't be, more happy to, to see that you're doing it and, and just proud of the work you're doing and proud to be even tangentially back here associated with it and just promoting what you're doing and a little bit part of the, the Artemis stuff we've got going there. But, um, you know, I, I think Mike, there's just a lot to learn from you guys. And, um, I think, I think we'll probably see even more products out of you here, here in the next couple of years as even other ways, because you keep doing kind of the next greatest thing in this. And I think you're going to see a lot of emulation as well. Um, so, so good work. We're, we're having a really good time with it. And uh, one of the things that we try and emphasize around here is making sure we're thinking, we try and think a little differently. And we're, when we're willing to take a, a few risks and we're willing to, uh, 
fail if we, you know, on occasion, but we're also willing to try new things and, and we're also willing to succeed. And, and, and that's, you have to be willing to, you have to be willing to try things differently. And, and that's really the, the mantra that we have with our, particularly with our R3 initiative here. So thanks for all the, all the, all the support and the partnership that we've got with Artemis and, and really, uh, you know, I look forward to doing lots of cool things to, uh, to ensure that, that we do have a future for hunting in this country and a future for conservation in our North American model. Uh, and I, I do want to remind folks, I, I, on occasions I, I have heard sportsmen in some of the speeches I've given or some of the groups that I've talked to, not, not publicly, but privately after the meetings come by and say, you know, I really don't know that I'm that in favor of all this R3 <laughs> stuff because I like my experience in the woods. I like, I'm out there to be quiet and I'm out there and it's, I'm not really that excited about the opportunity, you know, about bringing a whole lot of new people out to hunt. And, you know, I just want to point out that we've really, either we have a future or we don't. We either, we either grow as I, as I like to tell folks all the time, plants, animals, people, organizations, you you either grow there's two you're either in a growth phase or you're in a dying phase and uh and so we better be in a growth phase uh for our hunting or or we're going to see these opportunities and the things that we cherish go away well wise words my friend uh i guess before we before we let you go i'll I'll say is there anything else you want to share with us any parting shots any any other wise words and then we'll then we'll let you get on your way Take somebody hunting and enjoy it and enjoy them. Thanks, Aaron, for letting us uh, spend some time with you. And you're welcome, Mike. Uh, and just thank you. Keep doing all your good work. And, and I sure hope we, uh, we cross paths in person here soon and, and can do some of this stuff together. So let's do that. We'll talk to you soon, my man. Count on it. Take care. We are NWF Outdoors. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from HuntStand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device.